0: Welcome back to the Evil Eye Goth Movie Podcast. I am your co-host, Sam Deegan.
1: I am the other co-host, Robert
0: Scabarla. And we are here for a very special episode. Why is it special? It's special because if you've listened to our show so far, mostly we focus on either a movie or a double feature that counts as goth in some way, either It has goth characters, or we just arbitrarily have decided that we have to talk about it. But this episode, we are
1: focusing on a band instead of a particular movie. So we're doing backwards episode. We're doing music first and then movie.
0: Exactly.
1: Interesting. I'm not sure how I feel about this. I like things to be very structured and ordered. I don't like change. Well, this episode is all about chaos. Chaos magic. Exactly. And so, why don't you introduce the? Are they an act? Are they a band? Are they a troupe? Please don't ever call them a troupe again. <laughs> We're going to call them a
0: band. And we are talking about my favorite band of all time, which is Coil.
1: Aren't you friends with like members of Coil?
0: Um, friends would be, uh, don't you,
1: aren't you acquaintances, professional acquaintances,
0: colleagues? colleagues yes. yes. Uh, so we will talk about him a little bit later. I figured you want
1: to give a shout out at some point. Oh,
0: he definitely will get many shout outs. Um, but Coil are sort of hard to explain. I feel like people listening to this show either will know who they are and be very excited or we'll be very confused about why we're doing this. So they typically... Because they're a music troupe. I thought I said no more troupe. <laughs> <laughs> Let's call them a band just for shits and giggles. Sure. They're uh, electronic
1: artists. Sh-
0: artists. I see, I feel like it's not fair to call them electronic artists because they also play conventional instruments as well. I mean, many electronic artists do.
1: Right. They incorporate, you know... Electroacoustic instruments and regular instruments. That makes me sad to hear. All kinds of things.
0: <laughs> well, anyway, Coil are not exactly a goth band. They,
1: I think, have yeah, some are.
0: overlaps,
1: but they're... They've influenced, you know, electronic music, neo-pagan music, neo-folk, all kinds of different genres that are goth adjacent.
0: Totally. Thank you. You used my phrase before me. Also, like, dark ambient and shit like that. And... They're really, really influential in a lot of different ways. And the reason that we decided to talk about them is because they also have ties to movies and they're very invested in sampling and visual
1: imagery. One of the members was um, a video director.
0: Yeah. And I mean, we'll go more in depth into them as we go along, but Basically, the two founding members are John Balance and uh, Peter
1: Christofferson, who- Also known
0: as? Sleazy, who went by the name Sleazy, which is what we will call
1: him. It's also easier to pronounce than Christofferson. It's Fewer simpler, syllables. Fewer syllables. Also, so, it's cooler. Sleazy. Come on. That's a great name.
0: And hearing that somebody
1: goes by Sleazy and then you see what he looks like, it's,
0: <laughs> it's delightful.
1: He, he, I, I don't want to say he looks sleazy, certain- videos he does but like they're both fairly i don't want to say conventional looking people it depends on the images you're looking at of them and the era it definitely depends on the era i yeah. mean the later s- stuff they definitely start looking more like normal people or like like sure. what normal people eventually became when they started adopting the, adopting the trappings of like alternative culture
0: definitely agreed and i think even when they started sleazy looked pretty normal
1: and he also so- had the normal more. I don't want to say normal, more conventional background. He worked in advertising. He He had a real job. He had a real job. (laughs) Is
0: that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. So they founded in 1982, and it was originally intended to be a solo project for John. Um, But John was very young at the time. Like, he got super into really, really early experimental industrial music, which is how we met Sleazy, who's one of the founding members of Throbbing Gristle. And so if you don't know who Throbbing Gristle is, you're a dummy, you're going to need to use Google because I can't even,
1: I would put an audio clip in here, but like the music, I don't even like know what to pick from Throbbing Gristle because it's also like aggressive and it's hard to introduce to people who are not familiar with it. Yeah, that's not really, you know, a snippet kind of music.
0: But I think that's also the problem with coil is like if you're trying to introduce someone, where do you even start?
1: They have more conventional songs, not all of them, but like some of the songs are closer to what you would call like alternative music, especially in the 80s when you get into like.
0: Sure, it's like post-industrial is a lot of the time that's like the blanket
1: term used to describe coil.
0: And, and it influenced
1: a lot of like more conventional yeah. music. So you you'll hear it in stuff like Nine Inch Nails, who are obsessed. Are kind with of a coil. tribute band in a way. Especially uh Reznor's later side project, How to uh, How to Destroy, Destroy Angels. Angels,
0: which is like the first coil album. Yep. And he hired Sleazy to direct some of his music videos. We will talk about that more later. But basically, what you need to know is they I just, they're so influential, it really is hard to So, I mean, didn't they
1: uh, meet? Uh, Well, so not meet, but their first um, actual performance, if we want to incorporate music and movies together, uh, wasn't there a screening or, like, an event around a Derek Jarman film? There sure was. So something that's
0: important to know is... John and Sleazy were in a relationship for a really long time, like a romantic relationship for a really long time. They are both gay and were really important gay rights activists. I mean, they lived through the HIV AIDS epidemic that killed many of their friends. Discuss
1: in more depth, especially with one of their music videos, which ties into that era um, in a very important way, in a very dark way.
0: Yeah, and so their relationship with people like Derek Jarman and Clive Barker, who will obviously, you know, based on the title of this episode, be pretty central to it.
1: Who were also very outspoken activists in their own community and depicted many of the things that were happening at that time, specifically the AIDS epidemic.
0: Well, and what's so interesting is that they're all part of the same community in England. They're all these really interesting artists. And by by they, I mean not only Coyle, but Derek Jarman and people like Mark Almond, uh, who you probably will know from a band like Soft Cell and Clive Barker, is they were all kind of Renaissance men in the sense that they were involved in music and visual arts and film and often writing. Like John was a published poet. And there's also a really important occult influence through a lot of their work. I mean, it's kind of, I, I feel really nervous about doing this episode, which I never do anymore because they're like probably the single most important artistic influence on my entire life.
1: So you're going to be having a lot more to say than I will. I'm, I have a lot of feelings. I'm a Coil babbler. <laughs> I am familiar with Coil. I am a fan of Coil, but I'm not necessarily someone who is as invested in Coil as Sam is.
0: Yeah, I'm super invested. But one of
1: the things I find interesting about them, you mentioned um, Mark Almond. They pretty much worked with every major alternative, electronic, industrial artist from that era. So like J.G. Thurwell from uh, Fetus, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, um, who Um,
0: is credited as Clint Ruin on a lot of the early stuff he did as a collaborator with people like Lydia Lunch. But he helped produce and co-wrote one or two of the songs on their like early classic 1984 album called Skatology, which right. is one of my favorites. I have a giant Skatology tattoo on my arm,
1: but they also worked with uh, Chris and cozy. Um, I think Chris Carter actually built them one of their first samplers, like one of the first actual digital samplers before that was a normal thing. Which so is incredible. One of the things to think about with coil when you're looking into learning about them is that the community around coil and Robin Gristle, psychic TV, all of these bands and artists were all very much intertwined because of the way, especially British alternative music operated in that era. Yeah. Um, it, I don't want to say it was clicky, but. Oh, it definitely was clicky. I hate that. using that phrase, but like, it's definitely they were all working together on each other's projects. So you'll hear elements of this in, you know, different artists from that era.
0: Totally. And I think if you're more interested in this in an in-depth way and you want to see how they connect to other bands from the period, like Current 93 and Death in June, and stuff like that, definitely check out this book called England's Hidden Reverse. That David Tibet
1: episode—that's what we
0: need to do. We totally need to do a David Tibet episode because uh, one of the things that I love so much about a lot of these
1: weirdos—they're all weirdos—early fucking awesome weirdos, weirdos <laughs> like
0: <laughs> Coil and like Current 93 and definitely like Throbbing Gristle is that they pulled from a lot of really interesting cultural influences, not just art and literature, but a lot of movies. And I think that was something that I really gravitated to when I first... So I found out about them weirdly young. I was like 13 or 14. And for whatever reason, all of my kind of early influences, for the most part, were gay men. And they were all fucking weirdos and perverts. And, you know, I it, I think... The interesting ones, at least. Yes, exactly. It's not
1: like today where, um, you know, the Pride Parade is a fucking, you know, corporate-sponsored, here is like PNC Bank type of thing.
0: Yes, it was a very different time.
1: And, I and think- we'll also get into some of those kinds of politics when we talk about the influences on Hellraiser and the type of imagery that was used that is now slowly being or people are attempting to purge from, you know, mainstream gay culture.
0: And I think that was something that I found so interesting at the time, and is why I gravitated so heavily towards Coil when I found out about them is because it's sort of like everything I'm interested in fits under their umbrella. Not not only things like literature. I mean, they have tons of Marquis de Sade references and more kind of like transgressive philosophy and things like that. Um, I mean even some of the more interesting kind of horror and supernatural writers like Arthur Machen, are people that they quote, William
1: Blake. Well, so one of the things that's interesting about them, um, I remember in doing research for this episode, I think it was an article from Alternative Press from the late 80s. It was, I forget who was writing about it. Um, it's not a well-known writer, so don't quote me on who it would be, but the writer discusses how much of the film Referencing of that era was either, you know, bands making references to contemporary things that were happening in the 80s or like B movies. But when you look at Coil, they were going towards an even earlier, you know, pre 50s era, you know, like a lot of the movies that were getting referenced were like 50s B movies when you think of like the B 52s or other bands. Whereas Coil and other similar artists, Bauhaus, other goth and goth adjacent, (laughs) I hate that phrase. It's with us now, you can't get rid of it. They were referencing like the silent film era. They were, you know, you hear in a Quail song, you hear like who's clopping on the ground, which is not something that's like, it. it's the kind of thing you think of when you think of like exaggerated movements, uh, exaggerated audio noises from like the silent film era. They incorporate a lot of like art that people would not have necessarily been talking about in the mainstream of music. They were also talking about you know, the kinds of movies that maybe other people in America were not talking about. Um, We'll talk about, you know, Night of the Demon at some point, Um, stuff that isn't even still like British films that aren't even widely talked about today.
0: Sure. And I think some of also what, what makes it so fascinating is if you think about more contemporary noise bands they tend to sample things like, you know, true crime documentaries and serial killers. And it, like, <laughs> it's it's really predictable. Not that I don't like it, but it's really predictable. Whereas, I mean, that's
1: the safe end. It could be, you know, the dudes going on the dark web to get heading videos and shit like that as but well. But that's the shit that Coyle were doing in
0: the 80s is yeah. they were really influenced by Brian Gison and William Burroughs, which we'll talk about more later. Speaking of influential gay artists um, who... Pioneered this thing called the cut-up technique, which is something that's done both with text but also with sound.
1: Well, notably because Burroughs was also uh sorry, you said Burroughs. Yes, Burroughs
0: yeah. and Geisen together came I'm up not with it.
1: thinking straight right now, but yeah, so the cut up technique in text, I mean that's a lot how a lot of Burroughs' most popular novels, I don't want to say popular because he's still not accessible. <laughs> in air quotes accessible, you know. <laughs> but like that's such an important thing today, especially you see it, it's just kind of blase at this point because people don't even think about like how innovative that was at the time.
0: Sure. But Sleazy in particular, and so we'll talk about this a little more later, but John and Sleazy actually got in touch, which seems, you know, impossible before the internet, but got in touch with both Burroughs and Brian Geisen and Brian Geisen's assistant and developed a relationship with them, which I think is really interesting. And we'll talk more about that later but they were interested in sampling in the same sort of cut up technique way and so you'll hear these sort of like buried samples of I think what would be considered dark web stuff like people being tortured and beheaded but also like soap operas
1: and back when it was much harder to find those things whereas now you can just kind of you know pull up a VPN, make a few clicks, and you're where you need to be, whereas back then you kind of actually had to search. Part of what makes that art back then so much more interesting, we have an embarrassment of riches today where, you know, you can just try many, many different things, whereas there was a conscious effort you had to kind of decide what you wanted to find and then go look for it, whereas now we can just kind of pull up whatever we need or whatever we think might be cool. Uh, so that's why I find a lot of art from that era more interesting, specifically in its use of sampling. There was a more conscious connection between what I want to do and how I can actually obtain it and find it in a way that I can put it into my art.
0: Yeah. And I feel exactly the same way about it. Bands like Throbbing Gristle and Coil and also early sort of proto-industrial stuff like Einstürzende Neubauten and even Skinny Puppy to a different degree are all really inspiring to me because it's like to to sample like now you can get most of this equipment for super cheap and order it over the internet. Whereas, and we'll talk about the Fairlight later, but right sampling well, they were doing it before
1: the Fairlight became as ubiquitous as it is.
0: But at the time, it's like, and I love that they recorded on the Fairlight eventually. Yeah, but. It was really innovative, and I mean, people like Chris Carter, who you mentioned from uh, Throbbing Gristle and Chris and Cozy, it's like, these people were pioneers. One thing that I'm sure we'll talk about more as we go is, it's also important to note, and we said this a little bit, but Sleazy also directed music videos, and we will talk about these more later, but...
1: Before we get into that, why don't we actually discuss their music? Well, I just want to
0: mention Hypnosis. Oh, well, yeah, while, obviously. While we're talking about how he's,
1: you know... Super innovative in everything he did. The, I the mean, greatest. not even just in the advertising world where they were actually, you know, really influential, but cover art. Everyone thinks of cover art for, you know, the various artists that they did. I think we talked about the Scorpions one in the last episode. Did we? We did. We definitely talked about his uh, their work. Uh, we, we brought um, Sleazy... And that cover art that Hypnosis made at some point.
0: Okay, so yeah. So he, you know, it's like he's doing all of this stuff musically. And I think if you have to kind of boil the difference down between John and Sleazy in a phrase, I feel like John was maybe the kind of more intuitive, inspired one who was maybe more the poet whereas Sleazy was the one who I think, and not that John didn't also play instruments and write songs because he definitely did. But Sleazy, I think, was the one who had a lot more of the kind of practical knowledge. Like he was not only a great musician, but also a visual artist. And so Hypnosis were this advertising firm that was really influential at the time and also made many incredible album covers and really kind of revolutionized the way people thought about album art for mainstream bands like Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and Peter Gabriel like they were just all over the place and so it's so bizarre to think about you know here's this guy and I I mean sleazy who's in this influential but really obscure band who also has a career as a music video director, which we'll talk about more in a minute, but he made like 60 music videos for bands that played on MTV. And so like people saw his work. They just maybe didn't know who he was and also designed all these fucking album covers. Like it's just insanity.
1: Well, I mean, Hypnosis was the idea of like advertising firm as art collective before that became a really like popular hipster thing that now everybody does, you know, they you, go into, the first. you go into any major city and you see, you know, advertising agencies trying to present themselves that way. But this is actually what that was before the, the real deal, before it devolved de- into just all of the terrible shit people do today. But I mean, when you think about it, he was kind of ahead of, of the curve in the sense that you kind of need a day job. If you're going to make the weird art that Coyle did, because yes. it's not financially sustainable beyond you know, grants in artist artists, institu- uh, you know, art institutions. Like they did have presentations at MoMA and things years later. I know, especially in the early nineties. Um, I think it was around the time of the release of one of their albums, Love Secrets, a Love Secret Domain. Uh, MoMA LSD. did. Uh, LSD. <laughs> they did a retrospective of Sleazy's videos incorporating three of the ones that he directed for that album. But the type of music that they make, or at least made was not sustainable in the way that even today it would be hard for an artist to make music like that and be widely popular you know you'll well, see artists it's not pull popular from music that. you'll see artists pull from that they'll pull from you know the aesthetics and the trappings <laughs> you'll see people like um didn't the the new taylor swift album it was supposed to be like an a weird like underground folk album where that's the way people were treating it when it's just so mainstream pop music. It, it's this thing where like mainstream artists have flirtations with artistic inc- artistic credibility by, you know, mimicking previous underground artists.
0: Oh, totally. And I mean, I like the new Taylor Swift album, but... But also people, Trent Reznor
1: mimicking, you know, the artistic crap well, uh, No, so but that... He's an actual artist. I
0: I, no, 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 no. I feel like this is a super relevant parallel because... Yes. Oh, I, Trent, Re-
1: Trent Reznor is Taylor Swift? Trent Reznor is the industrial Taylor Swift Taylor of Swift.
0: industrial music. No, he literally <laughs> is. Because so, yes, I totally agree with you. It's very frustrating to hear people talk about this new Taylor Swift album like it's some like acoustic thing that's never been done before. It's like it's just a fucking pop record. It's a good pop
1: record, but
0: it's still a pop record.
1: And Right. It's that thing, though, where, you know, popular artists have to mimic, you know, artistic
0: well, and this is the thing with Trent Reznor is, so he was obsessed with Coil, and uh, obviously I am as he well, wasn't. so I can't throw any stones, but he hired them to do different things for him over the years, direct some music videos, which we'll talk about, which were super influential and important, but to do some mixes of his songs and he actually paid them to do an album for nothing records, his, his (laughs) label that like they took the money and never made the record. But if you ask, if you asked them at the time, they came across as sort of like how they felt about that potential collaboration. They came across as like grateful, but confused (laughs) and listening to interviews with them is one of my favorite things in the world. And they'll talk about how, you know, they're confused about like, why people describe Nine Inch Nails as industrial. They're like, it's just alternative rock. Like, this is pop music. This I isn't mean, it was experimental industrial.
1: It was post punk with like elements of that. It was a heavier form of post punk at the time. You know, it took elements of metal. It's
0: not even post punk. It's the alternative first record, rock.
1: The first record, um, Pretty Hate Machine, is basically uh, like a synth pop. A it's a like darker synth pop. Synth record pop. With, yeah. You know, a synth pop record with like metal guitars. Uh, so. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I can understand why someone like Reznor would appreciate that. You know, he came from um, a background. Yeah, he has good taste. I mean, even his early project before that was like a new wave band. A lot of um, goth and alternative artists started off in that vein. Ministry started off as um, synth pop, new wave. So it's not unusual for bands. And there
0: is a ministry coil connection, which we'll talk about in a little bit.
1: There's it's not unusual for bands to grow out of that. It's just I brought up the Taylor Swift thing because you were mentioning, you know, mainstream and in comparison to what they were doing and the fact that you know sleazy had a job where he could comfortably support himself allowed him to do this weird shit because it's not like a mainstream artist searching for credibility it's just a bunch of fucking weirdos who are immensely talented but you know they need something to pay the bills to get them by
0: which is great because in a weird way it makes me think of renaissance art and this is a little bit of a leap but just hear me out for a second it makes me think of renaissance art in the way that like they weren't really considered artists they were considered artisans and
1: people would commission them
0: exactly they had patrons and that's how they survived and they very rarely created something just for the pleasure of creating art it was always a project that they were hired to do and so i think sleazy is this really fascinating modern day example of somebody who kind of straddles both of those worlds where a lot of his genuinely incredible art as a designer for album covers and a director for music videos are things that were commissioned to him. And he was very talented in that field and it was lucrative for him. It also allowed him and John to have the lifestyle that they did and travel and make all of this weird fucking music that has made my life so much better
1: they did like to travel sleazy was a big fan
0: of thailand i mean <laughs> we'll talk about that more in a minute but i mean <laughs> i was
1: mentioning that in reference to love secret domain which is you know where sure. thailand well we should actually talk about the albums, yes, the albums. Yeah, so a second. the way we're going to structure this is we're not going to go through their entire discography because it's immense. You know? Oh,
0: they yeah, and this is also the problem. They're with, still
1: releasing, still releasing things even after you know they're they're both, doing it posthumous, posthumously.
0: Yeah, which this is part of the problem of introducing people to Coil is they're they have really incredible albums. So they have, you know, a thirty-year span of recording, they recorded a shitload of music, not only EPs and full albums, but live albums. Soundtracks. Even though they barely played any live shows, they still have a couple live albums. They have so many uh like anthologies that they appeared on and collaborations they did. And so there's just like
1: a fucking ton of music. So what we're probably gonna do is end up focusing on their early period because that's also kind of their best known period or at least what people tend to talk about the most because it was the most influential in what it was in what was happening at the time their later stuff is still um, amazing, really great it's just it tends to it's be very different it's more, more experimental
0: yeah. yeah i think if you had to sort of divide up their music you could do it by decade like the 80s is all about this kind of Often harsh, often experimental, post industrial, early neo folk kind of vibe, which is my favorite. The 90s is
1: way more Dancy. like
0: dancey acid house kind of influenced.
1: In the 2000s, they start getting like more yeah, and they abstract. Start, they start doing things. They start getting more...
0: super experimental in the 90s. But in the 2000s, the way that they end their career is with some really incredible albums. Like it's weird for me to think about, uh, I cannot actually pick a favorite album, but if I could only pick like two Desert Island albums, probably one would be Horse Rotor Vader, which is their second album from... 86. Mm -hmm. And the second one might very well be this record called Ape of Naples, which is from 2005. And it's basically their last full LP. So but they sound it's like if you listen to them back to back, you could tell it's the same band, but they sound radically different.
1: Right. And one of the things that um, I find interesting about their later period is they start indulging the weird and spooky side more yeah um, i'm thinking of like music to play in the dark or which start, is
0: also one of my favorite double albums
1: they start incorporating things like chaos magic more overtly and like I mean, all that's, kinds of other that's
0: definitely there from the beginning so that's something that like i don't know how gee, i feel like we've brushed over this in past episodes this sort of connection between gothic subculture and things like paganism and different types of occult practice and Coil were definitely neo-pagans to a degree really interested in things like chaos magic which again if you don't know what that is I'm sure at some point we'll do an episode talking more about maybe a film that connects to that kind of occult practice but it's sort of Like a modernized version of ceremonial magic, things like the Golden Dawn, the theories of Aleister Crowley, who is an absolutely wonderful person, despite what you may have heard.
1: And an absolute maniac.
0: An absolute maniac. But Coyle were also absolute maniacs. I think
1: anyone who, or at least, you know, up until very recently, when it has become respectable, anyone who, you know, presented themselves as a pagan or a neo-pagan, they were probably maniacs.
0: I mean, I wish they still were to be totally <laughs> honest, because there's a lot of very boring fluff up in the mix that
1: I'm not as interested in, but that's what happens when people like coil make things cool. So well, let's talk about the things that well, are cool about coil. Everything. I mean, you, did you want to talk about horse right or more? Yes, I do. So their first
0: two albums, I would say if you've never heard coil and you don't know where to start, listen to the first two albums back to back, uh, scatology and horse Rider vader and how to destroy angels is like really the first album but it's super experimental and to sort of disagree with your point that they got more into their occult practice and their music later how to destroy angels is literally a ritual reduced into musical notes and recorded so it's right there from the very first album but Scatology and Horse Rotor are more accessible and have things that sound more like conventional songs while also including those kind of throbbing gristle type proto-industrial elements, their occult influence, um, musical and literary references. I mean, Scatology has this super brutal cover of Tainted Love, which is... Right really all about how at the time they're living through their friends dying, wondering, am I going to be infected? Well, we can talk about that more when we
1: get to the video as and well. And we definitely will. I think will. that's probably their best known music video or at least like definitely. the most widely, you know, accessible.
0: Absolutely. And Horse Rotor Vader has some w- totally wild shit on it. Like almost every song is different. And I, I have a friend who... Is into a lot of industrial, is more of a metalhead, but the first time I ever talked to him about coil, he was like, you know, that record horse rotor Vader, <laughs> there's some really good stuff on there, but there's also some really gay shit on there. And I couldn't oh, get into it. I was like, I wasn't like, expecting it yeah. to go in that
2: direction.
0: <laughs> well, it's and that's one of the things I love about them so much is that even in the like early to mid eighties, they are not afraid to politically express who they are it's just like fundamentally part of their identity as a band
1: absolutely and that goes into their visual presentation as well and the videos once we get to those
0: but yeah it's hard for me to sort of sum up uh, i mean if i had if i have, so, like if I have to saying, pick horse rotavator as my favorite album right. i don't even
1: know how to sum it up well like what you're saying there is something that uh, where they combined you know I don't want to say more traditional covers because like they do a cover of who by fire by Leonard Cohen, which isn't necessarily traditional in any normal sense. And it's
0: a really creepy. I mean, who by fire is already kind of a creepy song and I'm obsessed with Leonard Cohen as well. And new skin for the old ceremony is a great album if you have not heard
1: it. Right. But it goes back and forth between stuff like that. And you know, the first five minutes after death, which is a little more out there.
0: And that's how the whole album is. It's like, there's, This really great song, and we'll talk about this more a little bit, but there's this great song called Ostia, which is all about the death of Pier Paolo Pasolini, the great Italian filmmaker, possibly the greatest Italian filmmaker. No offense to you, Fellini.
1: I believe they just re-released that as a single. Someone did. I forget who. It may have been like Dias or Sacred Bones. Well, and
0: so something that we, I think, so if you've listened to our podcast before and you follow us on social media, you probably know that we often do playlists yeah. related to certain episodes. It's going to be super hard to do a coil playlist <laughs> because most of their albums are not on Spotify. Right. You can find almost everything on YouTube, but I genuinely don't understand why... The selection on Spotify is the way it is.
1: Licensing rights. A lot of the newer stuff that um, some of the stuff like I believe.
0: But there's like a weird Russian compilation on there. It
1: makes no sense. I think a lot of the stuff that's there now is stuff that has been re-released, like Astral Disaster, I believe, was put out again recently by somebody. Which is weird. So whatever the label was that put it out, that's why it's up there, uh, because they have the licensing rights for um, streaming. Um, But like, yeah, I mean, there's definitely some more conventional stuff on there. I would call Slur kind of like an alt rock song. I mean, Slur is definitely. But it's more of what you think of. So beautiful. When you think of like an 80s, you know, industrial alternative song. Yes. So they do have things that like flirt with the idea of conventional or normal. It's just scatology is the same way. Jumbled up and cut up in weird ass ways.
0: Whereas, so something, if you just go online and look at their discography, the thing that's really confusing is they have a lot of these weird compilation albums, things like right. Gold is the Metal with the Broadest Shoulders and Unnatural History. There are several volumes of Unnatural History. I'm wearing an Unnatural History shirt right now. <laughs> but it's really hard to know where to start. And I would say Schatology and Horse Rotor Vader, if you listen to those and you're like, "What is this garbage? I hate it," then first of all, never talk to me again. But Stop second to the of all, don't bother listening to the rest of Coil. I,
1: yeah, I don't guess listen to the rest of this episode. But even in, the, in those first two records, you can start seeing the visual presentation and the incorporation of references to movies. The first one, Schatology, has a song "Tenderness of Wolves."
0: Oh, uh, yes. So, "Tenderness of Wolves" is. I think one of my favorite songs on the album, it has vocals from Gavin Friday from the Virgin prunes who always got to come back to that. We both are obsessed with the Virgin prunes. Um, but tenderness of the wolves is also a reference to an Uli Lama film about the, probably his
1: best movie by far, (laughs) by far
0: his, (laughs) by far his best film. I love him. He's you're a
1: boogeyman fan. He's, Sometimes kind of ridiculous. Or a fan of the uh, 2000 shot on video serial killer movies. I'm sure. pretty sure he did at least close to 10 of them.
0: He b- quite possibly did. But Willy Lommel was somebody who worked very closely with Reiner Werner Fassbender. And so Fassbender had a big presence in the production of Tenderness of the Wolves. Uh, it's about the German serial killer Fritz Harman, who operated basically between World War One and World War II and the movie is fucking incredible. I'm not surprised that they loved it. One thing that it's important to note is a lot of the films that they either reference or were involved with have something to do with gay subculture. And Fritz Harman was more or less openly gay, like as openly gay as you could be in the 20s and early 30s. And his victims were definitely young
1: homeless men. Well, I think it's interesting you mentioned that. Uh, not that specific case, but like the fact that they were aggressively openly gay. Um, the original CD cover It was for, really provocative. The original CD cover for Scatology was basically just a nude man's ass. A man's nude well, ass.
0: And so actually, I i wanted to mention that cover because what the original... So if you look it up, there you'll see two different versions of the Scatology cover. One is this Black Sun... The, which the Walmart cover <laughs> right. The safe cover, which that is something that's called Soul Niger in the occult tradition. Young wrote a lot about it. It has to do with the kind of supernatural, psychological, mythological, kind of dark night of the soul journey, but in a much more literal way. And so Coyle have a really amazing sense of humor, which is something I don't think we've mentioned yet, but. Yes. The black sun is also this reference to anal sex. <laughs> and that is something that shows pops up, up a lot. Yes, throughout there it sure pops up. Um but the cover that Rob is referring to is actually a slightly reimagined version of a man ray painting Monument to Sade. Yes, Monument to the Marquis de Sade which is, which will
1: come up in uh, reference to my favorite record, or at least, you know, a re-release of the record where they reference a, one of the Saad movies from the 60s, I think. Solo. Oh, no, oh, I Marat meant Marat Saad. Saad. You're yeah. talking about Marat Saad, yes.
0: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they mention Saad, a big fan of Saad many times, as they should be, which is also, I got into the Marquis de Sad as a writer not too long before i found out about them so it was just like all of the things <laughs> chocolate and peanut butter exactly anal sex
1: exactly <laughs> did you want to mention this is also the first appearance of your colleague
0: oh yeah so we should talk about steven thrower for a second and give him a shout out uh Stephen thrower was at the time the of scatology right? very very young um and worked with them off and on throughout the years, is definitely considered an actual member of COIL and not just like an occasional collaborator. it was after
1: this record, right? He became a full-fledged member.
0: Yes. And he does have some work on uh, he It's funny. He is a huge Roxy Music fan, as I am as well. And I think started playing the clarinet because of his love for Roxy music. And like, there are not a lot of bands that rock the clarinet coil is one of them. Roxy music is certainly another. And he's somebody that is important for us to mention because he's a really, really incredible film critic, as well as being a, a musician. Highly so important too. Yeah. Super important that
1: he released specifically. <laughs> well, he wrote, so he's written several books at this right, point. but I'm thinking of the one that's like, is it still out of print? Nightmare USA? It's right there
0: on the shelf next to you. Uh, well, yeah, so yes. So
1: All of the, all the smart <laughs> all people of the books. bought it before it like, went for like $500 on eBay now.
0: So I had this moment when I was about 16 or 17 where I thought my head was going to explode. I was in a Barnes and & Noble and walked over to the film section and thought like, I'm not going to find anything here, but I'm going to look anyway. And I found this book called Beyond Terror, which is also right next to you, on Fulci's films. And I was like, holy shit, somebody wrote a book about Fulci. And then I saw the name and was like, Stephen Thrower. That sounds really familiar. <laughs> I wonder, like, it's weird, but like, that's the name of the guy from Coil. And not too long afterwards, I found out that it was the same Stephen Thrower and my head basically exploded.
1: Well, yeah, but, I mean, the book I know is... uh insanely hard to obtain now
0: well so after beyond terror so he also it's super out of print but if you can find it he in the 90s wrote this really wrote and edited there are other writers in there as well people like my friend daniel bird who is amazing um it's called eyeball and it's a zine that focuses on Not just, there's definitely a lot of horror in there, but cult as well. Like, Eyeball was one of the very first places to ever write about Andrzej Zawowski's films, especially Possession. They tracked him down and interviewed him. So, he did Beyond Terror, he did Eyeball, he did this fucking incredible book called Nightmare USA, which Rob was mentioning. He's done this two volume set on Jess Franco's films. Like, He was ahead of
1: the curve. Now everyone's, you know, finally caught up or still catching up.
0: They're still catching up. I can't say enough good things about him, and he definitely will not be listening to this episode, but... Why is that? I don't think he really listens to a lot of podcasts. Oh, I was joking.
1: I thought you were going to tell him not to or something.
0: I'm going to tell him not to, but I jokingly, like... I've known since I knew who he was, I've known that he was gay, but I jokingly used to refer to him as my future husband. (laughs) And then when my name got a little bit more well known, I started to actually get to know him, which I still can't believe is a thing. And like he commissions me for work. So I feel like I had to sort of put to bed this whole referring to him as my future husband thing. Oh, so you're not getting married? I mean, his longtime partner is also somebody you should really check out. His name is Ossian Brown. He's collaborated with Coil. They have their own band, which is really incredible. Um, they both have collaborated with a lot of musicians that if you like Coyle, you know about like Nurse with Wound and Current 93 and things like that. But Ossian also has this really interesting book that he put together probably like 10 years ago at this point of vintage halloween photographs amazing everything in there is creepy as fuck so it's like every person that we're mentioning who remotely is connected to coil it's just a group of people who are super talented super innovative Have and creative influenced every and
1: aspect of everything that is good today
0: pretty much yeah and so shout out to Stephen thrower if you are not familiar with his work, I don't know what to tell you, but he's on a shitload of Blu-ray releases. He doesn't do a lot of commentaries, but he does a lot of video
1: essays. And he just is the best. And- Eschatology was where, you know, he first made his mark with Coyle because I believe he has two credits, even beyond just performing with them, actually, like, involved in the songwriting. Oh, totally, Yeah, I yes. believe As it's a um, a very, At the Heart of It All man, and Which is a Solar beautiful
0: Lodge. song. At the Heart of It All is incredible. Mm
1: I think this is a good place to transition into um, my favorite record, which Sam audibly gasped when I said it because it just doesn't believe make sense. It. <laughs> so one of the things, so before we get there, I wanted to talk about like how we talked about on this record, it does a lot of things, like where you have these contrasts between harsh noise and the softer moments and the poppier moments. That wasn't unusual. You know, other acts like current 93 were doing things similar, not necessarily the same. But many of these artists all charted a very similar trajectory over the course of their careers. So at the end of the 80s, bands like Psychic TV began dipping into Acid House.
0: Oh, yeah. And I I don't think we actually mentioned this, but early in Psychic TV's history, John Balance was actually a member of the band before Coil formed.
1: Right. But in general, many of the artists in this, you know, sphere of influence started moving towards that like late 80s um, psychic tv starts incorporating elements of acid house this bleeds into coil in the early 90s with love's secret domain which you know lsd for sure it's a
0: fucking party record basically it's
1: a <laughs> party record it's a banger because aside
0: from titan arch which is titan arch sounds like it belongs on horse rotor vader I don't disagree. And I, mean, I so love Titan The thing Arch. about Love
1: Secret Domain is it's a very dancey record, explicitly so, it, but it's done in a way that only Coil would do it, where there are still these, like, this disconnect. There's still moments of, like, noise and uh, ambiance and all the things totally. you would expect from the earlier records. None of A Coil record, when you listen to it, you're not going to think that this is a radically different band or this is a band that, you know, is trying to sell out to make money. They incorporate oh, acid no. House, which was widely popular in... Britain at the time and other parts of Europe, but it's not like the Stone Roses or something that, you know, fucking college kids would have been listening to. Like, frat bro, college kids.
0: What it sounds like to me is it's like, all right, we survived thousands of people dying, millions of people dying, a bunch of our friends dying. This is,
1: you know, the celebration. Like now
0: down. we're going to do a bunch of fucking drugs and just dance and have a good time. That's basically Love Seeker Domain. Although there are songs on there
1: that are dark, w- way dark. Absolutely. I mean, even the dancey songs, I'm thinking of the title track. you it's listening mean, to it his and you,
0: vocals are wild
1: on that track right uh there i don't know if he's using i mean it's obviously distorted i'm not sure what he uses to do that but magic magic yeah so the singles from this record were window pain this and this uh and the snow although they made a third video for love secret domain and listening to them you can hear the dance elements pretty much up front because they're all very much about i don't want to say partying but like Indulging in psychedelic experiences,
0: sure. And I think they openly admitted that that it oh, was absolutely.
1: I mean, it wasn't one of those things that they were trying to hide. I mean, they were definitely in a period of you know massive drug use. If you like read up um, on their history, I feel like their whole history is a period of massive <laughs> drug use. I'm just going based on like interviews I've read at the time uh, or contemporary ones that were discussing it.
0: Yeah. Well, I think. It was a period of very specific drug use, like...
1: Well, right. So in one of the interviews that I'm thinking of from The Quietest, I believe it is. Um, yeah, Proud it's a admits, great one. Um, like he had synchronized hallucinations with balance or something like that. I'm not sure oh, how yeah. that works, but... They
0: definitely did a lot of
1: hallucinogens and... Can you tell based on the title? I mean, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great record, though. Um, One of my favorite aspects, so... They don't just sample, um, sounds. They also sample words. So on "Love Secret Domain, they steal, I, I guess you could call it steal because it's directly taking from Wright Orbison's In Dreams. Oh yeah. And, um, and from William that, Blake too. Right. But, uh, The Sick Rose. When I think of, um, that song and the videos that they're making in this era, um, there's another one we'll get to later when we start talking about sampling, um, there's a lot of Lynchian elements, David Lynch, in this period for them. Specifically, that totally. I don't know if it was intentionally referencing Blue Velvet, but one of the later songs. I don't songs, think it was. Well, so one of the later songs that we're going to talk about when we talk about sampling, "Um, um Lagos uh, Garfungaloops" sounds like a Twin Peaks track with like the jazzy background the saxophone the back masking the vocals so I'm not sure if it was intentional that Lynch was bleeding into their work but it definitely feels like they were incorporating it subconsciously
0: yeah and I I do think and we've talked about this a little bit with people like Pasolini I I do think there are certain directors that they're just kind of
1: a Tuned to right. I mean, the kind of weirdos that they were is very similar to the kind of weirdo that David Lynch is, even though they're coming from very different places. Lynch being yes. like very, he, he's kind of the opposite world of them because he's a very Midwestern, he's like, laced ah, up, I'm just like gonna- <laughs> straight normal person. <laughs> I,
0: can't, I can't do a David Lynch impression, yeah, who's but- just
1: <laughs> able to observe the weird patterns that exist in that culture. Whereas they were coming from exactly the opposite end, you know, radically open queer people. Um, yeah, existing in a world that was outwardly hostile to them, making art that was directly hostile back towards those people. But somehow they and Lynch made similar art, which I find fascinating.
0: It's super interesting. And I, I think they maybe would have seemed more like David Lynch as musicians if they were straight men, but because they were gay... And that was so crucial to their kind of the political context of their music. I think that's where the major difference is. I mean, you know, I mentioned Ostia, that really incredible song on Horse Rotovator, which is all about the death of Pasolini. It's this sort of thing. Do you want to
1: talk about the death of Pasolini?
0: Oh. Yeah. Yes, no. I love Pasolini. We can always go into it in another episode. He's one of my favorite directors, but Pasolini was... It's a great
1: conspiracy theory as well, if you really want to get into it. Which we'll get into a conspiracy theory later.
0: I know. I was going to say you love conspiracy theories, so we can get into this now. But basically... Well, this is a different one. This is a different conspiracy theory, yes. But Pasolini is another one of those really rare and interesting figures who in the late 60s and 70s so he died in 75 uh, i mean died
1: is a nice way of phrasing it
0: well i'm getting there (laughs) died in 75 as he finished his last film solo and his most notorious film and one of the greatest films ever made party movie total party movie just
1: (laughs) corporatia all the good stuff that you want to watch and talk about everything
0: happens uh, he was another example of somebody who was pretty much openly gay, which Very much so being openly gay and being so fucking radically leftist.
1: I mean, his interpretation of Jesus was basically as a socialist. Yes. It was like <laughs> another Marx, great movie, by the way, Marxist
0: Jesus. Yeah. Yes. Um,
1: Marxist unibrow Jesus.
0: He does have a unibrow, but. All of Pasolini's films are amazing. I've seen every single one of them and they are all highly recommended. But he had this death wish that he talked about in interviews and I think is something that also shows up throughout John Balance's lyrics is this sort of flirtation between exploring sexuality and exploring life and exploring occult practice to its most extreme transgressive ends as in some way being an inevitable kind of courtship of death. And so Pasolini...
1: Pasolini fulfilled that.
0: Pasolini more than fulfilled that. So he often, he was very public about this, but he often visited the slums of Rome to hire hustlers, young male hustlers to have sex with. And I think Coyle were also pretty open about their practice doing the same thing, though not in Rome.
1: Thailand connection?
0: Yes. And Pasolini was murdered, allegedly picking up a hustler who beat him to death. Allegedly. But it turned into this whole fucking crazy thing where... Like Operation Gladio. Yeah, it later came to light that like the hustler didn't beat him to death because he suddenly decided he hated gay dudes. It was this whole thing that he was like paid to do. And really, if you if you just Google like Death of Pasolini at this point, the conspiracy is so stay behind networks, fucking
1: fascists, all kinds of fun stuff. I mean, being Openly gay
0: at that time was extremely challenging, let alone doing it in a conservative Catholic country at a time when being leftist
1: and being Marxist was
0: like already bad enough.
1: I mean, those weren't exactly the best of years. They were called the years of lead for a reason. They sure were. Lots <laughs> of people were killed. So um Love Secret Domain. Um we can transition from here if you want into the music videos because I know there's three music videos for this. Um we can just start with those unless you want to jump around. Well, we also should just talk about the samples real fast. Okay. So- yeah, we can do that. So let me just bring up the one I had mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, the record after Love Secret Domain was kind of an outtakes, odds, and ends record um with one a song. Many. <laughs> you know, Um Laga Scarfungal Loops, um, which references um an amazing, amazing movie, um, The Reflecting Skin, which also weirdly has um ties to being gay, yeah, and the consequences that came with that. It's set in the 1950s, in I believe somewhere in the Midwest. I'm not sure specifically. Yeah, it's where.
0: like Idaho or Kansas or something like um, that.
1: One of the early rills for Vigo Mortensen, but naked
0: Vigo Mortensen.
1: You get <laughs> naked Vigo Mortensen. Sorry. You I'll, try, I'll try to sound less excited. So um, the basic setup is um, Vigo has come home from the war, um, and his younger brother has this very you know vivid imagination. They have a neighbor who, a British neighbor who the brother is not a fan of, and he envisions that she's a vampire. She's goth as fuck. She is. There's also a wandering band of greasers who are probably child molesters and almost definitely child killers. Um, They also, the image of them that you always see is this black Cadillac driving around. So there's the sense of impending death and doom again, with that idea of kind of, I don't know if you want to say a death wish or the, the. this
0: just like flirtation, but I don't know if death wish is even really the right phrase, well, but so I feel I like everyone's going to know what I mean. It's like, it's this there's weird There's an attraction sort of, to it yes. between
1: the younger, uh, between the younger brother who sees it. And he kind of, at a certain point in the movie, he knows what's happening, but he chooses to ignore it because yes. it definitely bet he tries to use it to his advantage at some point and you're almost surprised he is not... I don't want to give away the movie entirely, but, but I'm not giving too much away to say that he's not the final victim in the movie. So there's this attraction with death, this sense that death is always on the horizon. And it's... I would call it goth as fuck. You know, Midwestern yeah, we, goth I as fuck. I feel
0: like we should do an episode on reflecting skin. I
1: mean, we could. It would be hard to pick music that tied into it beyond this. But to tie it back into Coil... Um, they did a song in 92, Um Lagos loops which is a back mask of the, one of the famous lines, exploding frog again. So the movie begins with three young boys blowing up a frog, literally like blowing air it's into its brutal. stomach and shooting um, the stomach. So it the explodes. The whole movie is
0: brutal. It's,
1: it's dark as it's hell. It's
0: one of those things that I got as a bootleg when I was probably 16 or 17 having no idea at the time that Coyle had sampled it and was just like shocked by it
1: so it's one of those weird movies that still doesn't seem to get like a lot of attention now even as art horror elevated horror whatever you want to call you know bullshit pretentious horror stuff (laughs) happening right now people trying to make a quick buck making you know boring domestic dramas about horror mo- uh, in the vein of a horror movie. Like it was doing that at an elevated level, like a genuinely elevated level um, in the late 80s because it came out in 90. So it's genuinely probably one of the best movies to come out of that era. And I can totally see why they would have used it as a, not even just like a visual reference, but like a framing reference for the entire song because it's not just that quote. Um, they chop up different pieces of dialogue for the song.
0: Yeah, and it does seem like the sort of movie they would have loved. I mean, that album, I don't think we've actually said the name, but it's called Stolen and Contaminated Songs, right. which also has a sample from Wizard of Gore on it, which I love, that they have this sort of like super... And, you know, you talked about this earlier, about how they kind of go throughout the decades finding things that inspired them and didn't just focus on schlocky 50s movies, but right. it's like they've got reflecting skin, something contemporary, but then they also have Herschel Gordon-Lewis, which I feel like still in the early nineties, people didn't watch Herschel Gordon-Lewis movies or give no. a shit about him.
1: Well, so also in that period, I don't believe it's off of that record. I think it was just um, a B-side for the snow. Um the oh, snow answers, answers come in dreams. Answers come in dreams too, which references As Marat sad. sad So it comes back to that again, where they make a conscious choice of having to find something and they pick something that even today, like you see some writers, a lot of the Diabolique writers will write about Saad and the influence in horror, but I still don't see a lot of it outside of there.
0: And a lot of people I think don't really write much about Murat Saad because it is an adaptation of a play. And it's, I mean, highly recommended if you haven't seen it, but I feel like. is definitely
1: not a figure for this era. Let's put it that way.
0: Well, he's my figure for every era. But Marat is a whole different thing. And I feel like to really be able to understand something like Marat Saad, you have to at least know about the French Revolution and understand things about the assassination of Marat. And so it it asks more of you than just like, now you're going to watch some sadomasochism. It's like a whole different thing. And that also, I think, is a lot of my attraction to Saad and coils as well is he's not just about transgressive sexuality. It's is a lot of it is paralleled to transgressive politics and to revolutionary politics. Um, but going back briefly to your favorite album, there is one sample that I have to mention, which Please. is uh, Donald camel's performance And if you haven't seen performance, it is one of those movies that I just don't understand why it doesn't get more attention. I don't even, I think it might be a rights issue, but it doesn't really have a great release. I don't even think it has a DVD release.
1: I've actually never seen it. It's
0: fucking nuts. It's basically about this guy who becomes the double of a rock star, played by Mick Jagger, like Mick Jagger has a starring role in this film. We're getting some
1: Dostoevsky shit going on right here.
0: Yes, but in a totally gay subtext, hallucinogenic. Like they oh, so do,
1: actually, just like Dostoevsky intended.
0: <laughs> yes, like Dostoevsky. And you know the good Lord intended lots of gay subtext, and they're on fucking mushrooms in the movie, and so I feel like that's the sort of thing where coil were like, oh, here are these two dudes who start to become each other, and they're on mushrooms. Sold. Amazing. Sample it. Yeah, I'm gonna have to watch that one. <laughs> it's incredible. I mean. It. I don't think there's any way that you could really construe performance as a goth movie, but we should probably still cover it anyway. Probably it's not. It's not <laughs> one of those
1: things that you're going to immediately jump to when you do that. But uh, another it's sample great. I wanted to Night talk about. Night of the about, Demon. Night of the Demon. So Queens of the Circulating Library, which they released in 2000 as an album. Um, and it was... The, about that Fairlight synth. I mean, I guess it's an album. It's literally just one continuous track. Yeah, which they did... Lots of people do. It's kind of like a prog rock thing, you know? (laughs) Sure.
0: But I feel like that's the thing that they mostly did in the early 2000s is have these sort of like experimental records that really are not accessible, but it's one giant track. And one of the things I did want to mention, though, is they used the Fairlight Synth, which if you don't know anything about it or its history, you definitely should look it up. It's super fascinating. But one of the first people to use the Fairlight Synth was Kate Bush. And who also used a sample also used the same exact sample
1: in uh, in Hounds of Love, which is funny as hell, because that's like a massive hit in England. And I can't yeah, think this is, was anything close to.
0: No, but it's a reference not only to Night of the Demon, but it's also a reference to Kate Bush. That's why right. they use the same
1: sample. It's like this shit's just sitting in the fair light. Let's use it. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, I mean, that's probably all we need to do for samples because we need to get through music videos and then the movie proper so i wanted to start with love secret domain because it incorporates something i love conspiracy theories no i was gonna say uh, oh, sequin jackets sequin jackets <laughs> um you know Thai sex tourism, all yeah. kinds of things. Yeah, <laughs>
0: like, what exactly do you so, love here? <laughs> they did
1: um, three music videos for Love Secret Domain. The three videos were- Which is wild because window they- Windowpane, the snow, and the title track.
0: But so I think we also should clarify that they really only have like five music videos. Right. So the fact that they did three for one album is
1: nuts. Well, so I think they were probably trying to at least make some gesture towards mainstream acknowledgement at that point because like i said previously around this time i believe it was moma who did um, a retrospective on their music videos incorporating these so you can see the attempt to move towards the mainstream and the video for Uh, windowpane which is just uh, well so the video for windowpane is jazz balance dancing right which it's the most it's the least, like, coil thing you could think of. It's just hallucinogenic imagery, kaleidoscopic which lenses. Is,
0: which is why I was about to say it's the most early 90s drugged-out video ever. It's just, like, here's some dudes on drugs dancing around. Right,
1: you would think it's a Primal Scream video right. if but you didn't know song, better.
0: But the song is beautiful. Like, right. window pane, I think, is one of their most accessible songs from that period.
1: Absolutely. But the one I wanted to talk about, actually, was the title track, um, where... They are in Thailand, um, and dancing they incorporate on a stage in a strip club, <laughs> at a strip club with young male dancers. The thing I found interesting about this is as I was doing research on this, I found an interview with alternative press where yes. sleazy was talking about the making of the video. And apparently they shot it in this, um, portion of Thailand. That's part of an area known as the golden triangle, which incorporates elements of, um, Thailand, um, Laos, and, um, what used to be known as Burma, now is Myanmar. The Golden Triangle is important because... How do I phrase this politely? The CIA was Just trafficking opium and probably heroin at some point, not themselves directly. So if you know anything about the CIA and its history, um, for example, in the 80s with the crack a- epidemic, the CIA didn't directly traffic in drugs, it facilitated the trafficking of drugs and um, so to understand a little bit about the Golden Triangle, you kind of have to understand the history of Southeast Asia in that era. Um, there are a lot of great books talking about like the CIA's role. There's one that came out recently, The Jakarta Method. But at the end of the 19th century, opium was like a major commodity, as we all know. Um, export to England specifically was huge. This just didn't go over well as time went on. It caused wars, second grade opium war. And eventually, um, the Chinese turned to communism. And as communists are wont to do, they decided they were going to execute all the drug dealers and mandate uh rehab for anyone who was addicted to opium.
0: No fun of any kind.
1: Well, you know, I think it's pretty cool that they decided they're gonna, you know, solve the problem by killing the drug dealers. But um <laughs> this ended up pushing the drug trade down into this area known as the Golden Triangle. And eventually, um, in the 50s and 60s, the CIA got involved in the Laotian Civil War, which it has to this day called a secret war. And as part of that, they were opposing a leader known as Pathet Lao, who uh, they were opposing a movement known as Pathet Lao, which was a communist movement. So to oppose them, they decided to support the Hmong people who traded in poppy as a currency because they were a very rural population and they didn't have a formal currency at the time. So the CIA facilitated this using, possibly using one of their own planes known as the Air America. Up to that point during the Laotian Civil War um, and other conflicts in the region, Air America, um, you know, would bust Thai volunteer forces, help refugees along, and, and then eventually possibly traffic in heroin. Thank like you, do. Um, this actually extended... Well into um, the Vietnam era, there are actually a number of cases of some maybe folk tales, um, some maybe real of U.S. soldiers who were brought back overseas and drugs were either trafficked in their coffins or their bodies, like actually cut open and stuffed in the bodies, at least one person. That's wild. His name is um, Thomas Sutherland, uh, was arrested and convicted in 72 of... They didn't find bo- they didn't find drugs in the bodies but they found you know incision marks on the bodies and they had been stitched together it wasn't common practice to do autopsies on dead US soldiers in Vietnam coming out of the Vietnam war sure. in cer- certain circumstances they would so at least one person was convicted of it but it became better known in the mid 70s because um the Harlem drug lord Frank Lucas actually bragged about doing this. That's he like crazy bragged about stuffing dead soldiers bodies with drugs and bringing them back. It was later found that he didn't do it. His partner, Ike Atkinson, um, attested to the fact that it was in furniture. But like the quote from Sleazy in this interview is literally, it's not entirely accurate to what happened, but he like brags about how they shot in this area where like Burmese- Lots of people died, yeah. Well, where they were trading gold with the CIA. So in some sense, like they were aware of this and they actively sought out this area specifically because the CIA was, you know- That's totally the sort of thing that they would do though. Right. And I just, you know, look up Air America, look up the Laotian Civil War, look up the CIA's history of drug trafficking in Southeast Asia and beyond, because they've done it a lot. They're still probably doing it to this day. I
0: feel like somewhere from beyond, Sleazy is happy that you're talking about this right now. I hope
1: so, <laughs> because it it was cool as hell. And I went down a fucking rabbit hole today when I, well, yesterday when I really started investigating it, that's how I found the Sutherland connection. I'm probably going to put a FOIA request or two in just because,
0: just to specifically be to customs
1: you know <laughs> to see if they'll actually honor it i've done it before i still have never successfully filed a FOIA request one day it will happen one day so uh, i wanted to bring that up for music <laughs> videos specifically because of that connection but we should get to their earlier videos specifically the one that is best known or that they're best known for
0: oh tainted love tainted so love.
1: so people know it as the soft sell song it's actually a cover of a soul song
0: which is incredible. And all of the versions are amazing. Absolutely. And super depressing. And I feel like
1: depressing in different ways.
0: Yes. Although the Tainted Love, like the pop version that everyone knows from Soft Cell doesn't sound depressing. But when you focus on the
1: lyrics, you're like, Jesus, it's also about the same subject matter, but in a different context,
0: in a more accessible context. Whereas the coil version it's like it's
1: a dirge super it's a funeral dirge
0: yes it is a funeral dirge and the video is also a funeral dirge and there's this totally wild part in the video where mark almond walks into a hospital room where someone is clearly dying of aids and like smirks at him and turns around and leaves and you're just like oh oh."
1: so the video itself um the setup is it's A couple. We have to assume they're a couple based on what we're seeing there and what we probably know of Coil at the time. And lots of
0: honey dripping all over everything, which is kind of like a gay sex reference.
1: Well, I also saw it as a reference, so a contrast between death and then bees and honey as a symbol of life. Procreation. Continuance, sure. And
0: they also, I think, would have known bees and honey as a symbol of Venus and Aphrodite
1: and sexuality. Right. So there were probably multiple layers there. But the video begins many layers with um a man wheeling what I would have to assume is his lover, his dying lover, into the man is
0: sleazy, right? Who I think I think it's John in the chair.
1: Well, so again, another added layer to it. Yes,
0: because they were lovers at that
1: point, and we see so. Again, there are multiple Im- multiple ways to take the imagery of the bees and the honey, but it's contrasted against the withering body of an AIDS patient in hospice. It's so depressing. I and, watched it
0: again today. I'm like, right, probably there. I mean, you know, I have no idea how many people actually listen to this podcast, but chances are a fair number of you are young enough that you don't remember the AIDS
1: epidemic. But I also talk about fucking more bullshit with our government and Reagan. I mean, it was, I was a
0: kid at the time and the only reason, I mean, so were you, we're at the same age basically. Yeah. But the only reason that I was so cognizant of it is because my grandfather was a doctor and he was, um, I don't know if this is the case for everyone, but in my school district, we had a doctor who sort of oversaw the different schools and would come in and consult as needed. And that was my grandfather's job. He also ran, like he had a suburban practice, which is how he made his money, but he also ran a free clinic in Camden, which if you are not in the Philadelphia area or you don't know anything about New Jersey, Camden has long been one of the worst cities in the country.
1: Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's, turned around in recent years they're actually they've shown lots of signs of improvement sure by you know i hate to use the phrase community engaged policing but like the policing tactics that they're using are less aggressive than in other areas they're trying to do historically what has been shown with policing when it works is usually people living in the communities you know, the community sees them every day. There's lots of foot traffic. It's not like they know each other. We live in Philadelphia. where literally all of the fucking cops live outside the city in fucking Delco or and they're all racist pieces of shit. Right. And a lot of them don't actually come from the city proper. And the ones that do are typically placed into those communities along with the assholes. So what has worked in Camden is a little different, but it's I I don't want to make it seem like it's as bad as it once was.
0: Oh, no, it's definitely not. But I mean, even up to like 10 years ago when I would have to occasionally go there for work it it's
1: not it had different reputation
0: it's not a fun place and it especially was not a fun place in the late 80s and early 90s and so it's something that I think at the time if you were part of middle-class white America, what HIV and AIDS were was being communicated, not in an accurate way because the government, yeah, because the government didn't give a shit. I mean, I was told in school that if you were near a gay person and they breathed on you or they tried to kiss you, you could get HIV. And I went home and was like, this doesn't seem right. And my grandfather lost his shit and basically reamed out our, you know, health class teacher.
1: Yeah. I mean, I came from a conservative rural community where generally like, intro- so my, my parents are conservative, but they were different in the sense that like, they're centrist and they always sort of were and they always preached inclusiveness. Um, One of the first experiences I had with a um, gay man was my mom's hairdresser, as I understand that's probably cliche, but she made a point of like, we're all the same. Um, but as it relates to something like the AIDS epidemic, the way I was introduced um, in the early nineties, there was a lot of pop culture around it and the band played on. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an HBO special specifically. I think it's called blood brothers where it's about a kid yes. who gets a blood transfusion. Yeah. They played that for us in school, which is a horrible way of presenting it because it makes it seem like I, I understand the point of why they did it so that it could seem like it could happen to anyone, but it ignored who it was primarily a, and sure. that's sort of the way it always was in the 80s when it was an epidemic our country didn't give a shit literally ronald reagan talked about legionnaire's disease no as a bigger concern. Fucking
0: george bush senior and i'm gonna real try real speaking hard. of
1: conspiracy figures i could go off yeah. forever on the cia shit with him
0: i'm gonna try real hard not to go down this rabbit hole because it's one of my like top five anger triggers right george bush senior if you're not Super familiar with him. I Bohemian mean, Grove. Oh my god! So he, <laughs> if if you're too young to remember this, he was the CIA director before he became vice president, before he oh, became president. I know
1: Operation Cyclone. And, oh my god, <laughs> rain it in. <laughs> um, But he
0: is responsible for the deaths of millions of people in the United States from AIDS because he basically aggressively blocked any kind of legislation or funding that would have helped scientists find the sort of drug cocktail that helps so many people now and that has made it no longer the kind of instantly fatal disease that it was. And so... George Bush Sr., wherever you are, I hope you're burning in hell, even though I don't believe hell exists. He he is
1: rotting his corpse. But uh, the point we're making here is the representation of AIDS and who was being affected by AIDS is much truer to reality in the Coil video because it is about a couple. um, One who is obviously maybe infected, we don't know, um, because he's... well enough to the assumption right um but the other one um who is dying of it and it's interesting the way that sleazy portrays it because as the man withers away in the video he's not necessarily portrayed in a way that you would have seen later on even today where it's kind of like i don't know how to phrase it right it's like trauma porn almost where you see the decaying body the body is almost angelic in the way it's portrayed this pale white body and a soft blue light on the bed just lying there perfectly framed it's an interesting way to portray it
0: so the imagery i think is supposed to evoke the sort of paintings of saint sebastian because he's wearing what looks like kind of a loincloth and he's supposed to be this like hot skinny young dude
1: right but then eventually the body ends up in the morgue and we see it's almost like a pan to heaven because you see the pan from the corpse to the light And the lover freaking out and literally destroying the bed. Yeah. Which obviously is venting about the situation at the time, the frustration within the gay community about what was being done, or rather what was not being done.
0: Nothing was being done.
1: (laughs) And so Tainted Love as a single is important because it's regarded as like the first um, AIDS benefit record. Um, So the fact that they made a video explicitly about that and the proceeds from the single went to benefit um, people, looking like AIDS research, families, people like that.
0: Yeah. It's, you know, if you're not really familiar with this period or sort of what was at stake, I highly encourage you to look it up. I mean, there were a lot of artists and musicians and even philosophers, people like Michel Foucault, uh, Derek Jarman, who... Basically, uh David Voynarovich is another one. Also well, they soundtracked a movie up.
1: literally about the subject matter for German.
0: Yes. Um, Angelic Conversation, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But just I think if you have trouble understanding, like, okay, I sort of like this band, but why are they being so gay? First of all, <laughs> go fuck yourself. I think you're missing the point there. Yeah. Dude. You're missing the point. But second of all, like there is this hugely important political context that I don't think early coil can really be, or
1: maybe any coil can be understood without. Right. I mean, you can't look at something like Tainted Love, the video and not, I think even the dumbest man alive would understand the context of what's happening here.
0: Well, even talking about Love's secret domain, and the right. the single, the lines that he borrows in very cut-up technique style from William Blake, like, Oh, Rose, Thou Art Sick, that still seems like a pretty obvious reference to the AIDS epidemic.
1: Right. You can't divorce that aspect of their identity from the art. And nor should you. And coming at it as, like, why are they so gay, man, is such a weird, you know...
0: I've heard that from so many people though. Like I, don't I like understand
1: that. Well, I don't
0: understand it either because I, I definitely know a couple of people who like Throbbing Gristle. And they're like, yeah, but maybe Coyle's too gay. I'm like, yeah, but do you actually Throbbing gristle? Okay. <laughs> <I'm> like, what?
1: <laughs> I kind of miss going to noise shows and seeing gay sex, you know, uh, you know, screen Projected. in the background. Projected, that's the word I'm looking for. That would always yeah. be like. My favorite noise readers are the ones be. who will like cut between like random scenes of like violence decapitation. and decapitation. Yeah. all kinds of shit.
0: But that's, that's how it should be. That's uh, how it should be. We should also very quickly talk about <laughs> Slazy's career as a music video director. Right. And
1: he's done quite a few.
0: Which I still don't even understand this. I mean, he's done some stuff that maybe you would expect, like, you know, we've talked a Ministry. lot Well, we've talked a lot about their friendship with Mark Almond. He's done soft sell uh, music videos. He's done music videos for solo Mark Almond. Like Ruby Red is very kind of, you know, queer culture, leather bar type of shit. But if you like soft sell at all, you should expect that. They also he has done a ton of music videos for Erasure. So he's also
1: done it for Rage Against the Machine. I know multiple videos for Rage Against the Machine. It's incredible. I mean, I think at a certain point, like he developed an identity. I (laughs) I was going to say that too. I think at a certain point he developed an identity as like a dark music video director. So yes, you can also see the influence even in. So the first video we didn't discuss the wheel. Oh yeah. Um, The wheel is great. The wheel
0: also shows a very young looking John Balance. Right.
1: That was, I believe, 85, right? Yeah. So
0: if you watch. the wheel, so We should say really quickly, one of the frustrating things about introducing somebody to Coil's discography is that there are all kinds of like singles, standalone singles that don't fit on an album. And the wheel is definitely one of those. But
1: even if you watch the video, you can see how it influenced the 90s style of music video direction. Um, The video incorporates a lot of um, pan, uh, not panning, um, dissolves between like you see the image of a person in the foreground and there's kind of a dissolve into the background with something happening. So you see the sparks flying. It feels like very early 90s edgy 120 minutes before someone before like that was an aesthetic. So I can see why artists like Rage or Sepultura would have um, saw it. Sleazy out. Totally, which is crazy because like Van Halen though is the one that really throws me off. Uh ELO, the yeah. the. Like there's so many, but okay. well, the, the the, first the the record is sort of got soul mining.
0: All right, I'll give you that. But it's like the sheer number of people who have watched that fucking bulls on parade video, which MTV <laughs> played incessantly, like Sleazy directed that.
1: Yeah, it's like funny keep to
0: that think. in mind.
1: But he it also, also doesn't reflect like the style that he had cultivated previously. <laughs>
0: No, but there are definitely some naked male torsos in there. Sure. Which speaking of, the nine inch nails video for Wish is like full of naked male torsos, and you're like, Yeah, I see what you're
1: doing there. I mean <laughs> most early nineties nine inch nails. I mean, any like anything up to like um the down anything up through the downward spiral, you can sort of see how oh, yeah. he would have been influenced, like, visually by them.
0: Totally. I mean, also, so we talked about Ministry. He did Just One Fix and NWO.
1: Speaking of George H.W. Bush and Conspiracy
0: Speaking Theories. Speaking of, uh, but he also did a fucking body count video, which it's Fuck like, yeah.
1: <laughs> like, all right.
0: Ice tea. Awesome. He did. Uh, so earlier I brought this up, but he did the Nine Inch Nails video for Broken, which is like one of the most infamous videos, like infamous band videos of the 90s.
1: Yeah, it fits in that wonderful tradition of banned MTV videos, um, which Soft Cell had and a number of other artists in this community. Oh,
0: and I mean, Coil, the Love Seeker domain video was banned. That's why I was
1: like, <laughs> this entire community of like post-industrial or industrial <laughs> artists, um, you know, weirdos who were making this type of music and in this community, they Gods all- love them. Ended up having some kind of video band at some point, if they were any kind of talent.
0: Uh, But the wildest shit- which is? He directed a Hanson video.
1: Which one, Mbop?
0: I will come to you. I don't know the song. I don't remember that. But my assumption, so if anyone has seen the sort of key and peel behind the scenes of how Gremlins 2 was made, <laughs> I'm imagining a similar thing for this fucking Hanson video. And my assumption is that the only reason Sleazy did it is because he thought it would be funny.
1: Most likely, or like the money was
0: good enough. A, a combo, I think. Yeah. But he directed tons of videos throughout the 90s. Like, I think I said earlier, he's got like 60 directing credits, something
1: like that. I I mean, I would definitely recommend the Ministry ones because they're a lot of fun and they definitely fit within the template of maybe what Coyle would have done if they, you know, fucking did heroin straight into their face like Al Jurgensen.
0: I mean, few can survive that
1: it's you know, it's hard to argue he's got quite maybe the life Al story.
0: jorgensen has survived i don't actually know maybe he's undead it's really it's just hard fucking to say. like drugs
1: pumping through his veins at this point pretty much So oh, Hellraiser we're not going to get too into it because you know the fucking movie you know the plot you've seen it a dozen times we don't really need to go into depth about Pinhead the Cenobites Frank or the weird sex shit going on well I, I- mean we will get into it but we'll get into a different angle it's going to be mostly about Coyle's relationship to the movie the soundtrack that did not get used the weird SM shit that they were trading back and forth with Clive Barker and all of the fun stuff yeah all the good stuff all the good stuff so the movie came out in 1987 um it was directed by clive barker who wrote the story it was based on the hellbound heart which is incredible and i think he
0: wrote it what the year before like possibly it came out not too long before the film and this was his first movie as a director and i strongly encourage you if you haven't if you like Hellraiser at all or you like clive barker as a writer which you're an idiot if you don't (laughs) uh, (laughs) Uh, you definitely need to read The Hellbound Heart. because Thief is, of Always
1: is also really good.
0: It is Which, it's funny, uh, our friend Ian sent me Thief of Always at the beginning of quarantine, and I have yet to read it. I've been saving it for Christmas for some weird reason. Probably my favorite by him. But Hellbound Heart is very different from the film, and I think Hellbound Heart feels way more like a coil thing than hellraiser is it
1: edgier i have never read it
0: oh it's way edgier and there's way more sex as there was supposed to be in the film
1: well so when you're releasing a movie with any kind of mainstream inclination in the late 80s gay sex is probably not the first thing you want to have up front and center
0: i know not even gay sex so there were supposed to be scenes if for some reason you haven't seen hellraiser i can't imagine you're actually listening to this podcast but You know, it's basically about someone who's trying to go to the furthest reaches of hedonistic exploration. And so in the film, there are these scenes between Frank and Julia, which are actually super hot. And Clive Barker was trying to have more scenes between Frank and Julia and trying to have them more explicit. And I think he actually filmed some and the studio got some (laughs) sand in their vagina and was like, you need to cut this. New
1: Line was like, sorry. It's too sexy. Cut it. So the basic premise is um, the movie begins with um, Frank going to, do we know where it is? It's Morocco, I believe. Yes. Um, Starting off with the way you started this podcast off, A Shot of Absinthe. Which I
0: sure did. I had absinthe for dinner. It was great. You but do I, also, that if you're a guy. I also have to wonder, and I've actually never thought about this before, literally this moment. So, William Burroughs lived in Morocco yes. for a time
1: because. I'm sure, uh, wasn't he connected to Barker too? I feel like they knew each other fairly well.
0: Well, so I'm, I'm wondering if maybe the reason that it starts off in Morocco is, is some sort of reference to someone like Burroughs going there because of its permissiveness.
1: Right. Um, but, you know, Frank gets a little more than he bargained for. Because oh, I
0: think he got everything he bargained for. He ends up getting torn apart <laughs> by happy uh, swing
1: chains and all kinds of crazy shit. So, so Bradley. This is where like the weird industrial elements start coming in because as the movie goes along there are definitely parts I'm thinking of when Kirsty is in the hospital and you have like a dream hallucination sequence it feels like an 80s fucking like nurse with wound video it or something.
0: It totally would not be out of place in
1: Coil. Even any the tainted
0: of it. love video with right. the hot the crazy hospital shit and like the flower blooming and
1: yeah, there's so some
0: gorgeous stuff in there.
1: Barker was definitely inspired by and influenced by what was happening at the time. He was definitely a Coil fan because they well, were in correspondence. Were friends. Right. Yeah.
0: And I think We've been talking a lot on this episode about people who have really bravely lived as openly gay men. Definitely. William Burroughs is one. Clive Barker
1: is another one where in the horror community, especially that would have been brave. I in mean, that era. even still fucking horror bros are the worst. Right. But I mean, explicitly in that era where it would have been almost impossible to get anything overtly, anything not overtly straight produced and there sure. are like so when i was saying gay sex earlier what i was trying to get at was like there are still things that are like queer in this movie even if it's about like straight sex proper or oh yeah. weird kinky straight sex um the SM aspects of it which grew out it it wasn't explicitly like a gay thing but it was very much attuned to that community
0: well You could make a case that it was explicitly a gay thing. So in that
1: era, so when you think of like Robert Mapplethorpe and a lot of the art that was coming out in that era, definitely.
0: Even just the underground leathermen clubs. I mean, that was in a lot of ways, my, so I mentioned earlier, I randomly and probably unwisely started reading the Marquis de Sade when I was like 13 and now we know what your problem is well yes it's totally my problem um
1: That's sam's dog by yeah the way. my if dog is making in of us, dying. so
0: many sounds on this
1: particular recording she's Sorry, very Papa. very old she's not a fan of sod uh
0: excuse me she <laughs> she is my dog
1: <laughs> so you got introduced to sod at 13
0: and not too long after that, of course, you know, had to go down weird internet rabbit holes because the internet was a new thing. Of course. And so that was how I found out on all these message boards about gay Leatherman bars. And so to me, the first time I saw Hellraiser, I was like, Oh, this is some Leatherman shit. And so I think in a lot of ways, even though s is something certainly that anyone can explore there are ways in which i kind of innately associate it with gay culture throughout throughout many decades because it's like straight people and lesbians had to fight for space in the snm scene because i think right. for so long it was mostly gay men and i think it's still kind of fraught i mean if you look at theorists especially or even dare i say it feminists who talk about the experience of straight women or bisexual women in snm culture there's always this kind of like condescension uh, there's this condescension there's a sort of frowny face it's
1: about explicitly like um, men asserting dominance and treating women as inferiors whereas like the actual experience can be very different
0: Totally. And that's something that I find very frustrating. So my own personal interest in it or experience with it is not something I talk about very often because feminists in particular are so quick to put it down and be like, you've been brainwashed by some dudes.
1: Well, you even see it coming out now in the way that aspects of it are trying to be, I don't want to say it's weird with younger groups who are trying to push it out like pride displays specifically where they're trying yes. to sanitize and tame them. Whereas Nothing that was intrinsically them is sanitized. That was intrinsically <laughs> or a part of be. the identity of those parades from the very beginning because it was about asserting the various groups and communities within the overarching gay and queer communities.
0: Well and I think a lot of it, especially earlier on to your point, is that The message is that queer culture, whether you're a gay man or you're bisexual or whatever, whatever you are, wherever on that spectrum you fall, is you're asserting the fact that you not only fall outside of, but reject this kind of like middle-class mainstream straight white culture. Right. And I think that is definitely something that Coyle celebrated and I, I agree that it's Barker celebrated, very it well. Barker celebrated the fuck out of it and still does. I mean, he does,
1: yes. His stuff is still very much transgressive but by today's standards.
0: It's really funny to me to think about people who have had mainstream success like Clive Barker and even like fucking judas priest it's like these are gay dudes making art about being fucked by other gay dudes and so being enjoy misunder- that
1: bros and being misunderstood by those dudes specifically i know hellraiser very early on um it, i'm sure many people understood implicitly what was happening on screen but pinhead Up until I would say probably like some point in the 90s, late 90s was just kind of a campy Freddy Krueger type figure because you see him pop up in all kinds of like mainstream advertising, all kinds of great. Yeah, you see him all (laughs) over the place where it's like it's literally like a dude in like fetish gear. Which is great that
0: Fetish gear is even appearing in mainstream
1: culture to, (laughs) to some degree. Well, now it's kind of normal. It's been normalized. But like back then, it would have been like pretty radical for that to show up. Certainly. And especially in the context of what's happening here, where it's literally about Julia just looking for like good dick. Pretty much. And she just can't get it from her boring ass husband, who's also the dude from um
0: He's so from
1: Cobra. From Cobra. He's in it like every eighties movie is like the boring straight laced dude. He's so milk toast. And that's the point. Frank is like Frank is like the hot, you know
0: Well, this goes back to the sort of death wish thing we were talking about earlier, where I feel like for a lot of people
1: Sex and death on- are linked.
0: No, on some
1: level. No, I mean, for Frank, they are. <laughs> for Frank,
0: they certainly are. But I think for some people, what is genuinely sexy is dangerous or forbidden or transgressive. Right. And that's why people watch porn.
1: The heart wants what it wants, not necessarily. Well, I don't think it's about
0: the heart. I think it's the, well, the
1: loins. I, want, I'm trying to use the more they elevated turn a phrase there but like the idea is that you're not necessarily always cognizant of what you're attracted to there are like these primal urges that some people sure these things we are attracted to that we don't fully understand
0: and i think that a lot of danger
1: being one of those
0: yes is at the base of a lot of clive barker's writing and you know his works as a filmmaker and it's definitely the sort of foundation of coil as, as musicians
1: so one of the ways that Coil influenced this, and I know Sam has a lot to talk on here, she can elaborate more than I can, is that Pinhead specifically and the Cenobites were influenced by magazines and images that Clive Barker was trading back and forth with Balance and Slazy.
0: Yeah, so they had a huge collection of SM magazines and Leatherman magazines, and I guess Clive Barker would come over and hang out and look at their art the art on their walls and their magazines and if you want to hear this story from the horse's mouth as it were there's that really great hellraiser release i think from arrow yeah where there's a whole documentary where steven thrower talks about it and he was he was there he was involved talks about how clive came over and looked at magazines and was like oh shit i need to put this in my latest story
1: clive i don't think has ever directly attributed it to that probably you know because it's not something he could have spoke on in that era. I think he may have, he may have like, you know, he's been pulled more open from, to it recently. Yeah.
0: Pulled from different influences, right. but he did
1: ask them to make, to, to compose the score. And so one of the things I do, so there are a bunch of things I don't like about Hellraiser. Um, some of it is just, it just isn't necessarily for me. And that may be one of the things. you um, you don't want to bang uncle Frank, you know, Hey man, <laughs> If he comes back from the dead, I won't say no. <laughs> no, um, there are things about the movie I just don't like from a filmmaking perspective. And in some sense, like it just isn't a movie for me. Well, but, he
0: also, he talks about that. He talks about how he didn't know what the fuck he was doing right. and he made some weird choices that he wouldn't make again. Well, so and- one of the
1: ways he prepared for this, I remember, I know he said he just went to a library and checked out books on filmmaking and started like taking notes. And he had no background in filmmaking before this. So this is literally like, him yeah. coming in fresh, but one of which the things that obvious. really annoys the hell out of me is that Coyle produced the soundtrack for this, and it it's, just never did. not It didn't get used. So Christopher beautiful. Young, who made the gothic-sounding score in the gothic-traditional sense... Sure, and I like the score. ...incorporates elements of Coyle's music, but it's not the same thing when you listen to their soundtrack, which is so much more... It's creepy. Visceral, visceral and visceral. creepy and... it also i think connects to some of the imagery better because like i was saying before at certain points in the movie it feels like parker is uh, directing an industrial video the music feels more attuned to the images on screen than what we get with young who did very good it's just not to my liking it's too like the orchestral music is too howard shore howard shore
0: (laughs) everything like no offense to howard shore because i love some of his cronenberg scores Uh, the
1: band scores in the era for uh richard band's music for like on reanimator which was psycho and yeah, all that are Bernard of, Herman.
0: there are a lot of strings
1: yeah so like it's not it's too conventional for what we're looking at on screen now don't get me wrong there are things about this movie i think that are wonderful um the effects are fucking brilliant even by today's standards yeah and, and there are moments some of those
0: shots are just yeah and unforgettable
1: jesus wept moment which is I will say one of the best moments in horror history because you get that moment where, you know, Frank's kind of like licking his lips as he's staring out at Kirsty, but he's also being torn apart. It's great. Kirstie, his niece, by the way, we should probably note that. Yeah. There's lots of weird sex shit going on here.
0: It's great. I mean, I wish he could have made the film he wanted to make. And, and I think that's
1: part of another reason why I'm just like, eh, it could have been weirder.
0: I, I mean, it could have been weirder. I think we're also jaded and I think so I
1: I've seen this movie I watch it every year or two and I've done that since I was like 15 and every time I think it's gonna get better and each time I'm just like yeah so I really love this movie I'm not saying you can't I'm just saying I personally don't like
0: it well I I do think some of it is like it presents as being very transgressive but is actually pretty conventional and that is a weird contrast to deal with when you're watching the movie also it's very dated
1: yeah like it has not aged particularly well well no i'm actually going to go against that i mean
0: like the costumes and things like that
1: so the thing is like the way people dress now like people mimic that stuff so like calling stuff dated is to me it's a little like eh People, it like, looks like it's people, from the late '80s. I see people dressed like the boyfriend today.
0: Me too, and it upsets me.
1: No, I actually think that's cool. Also, the boyfriend sucks. The boyfriend sucks. But, <laughs> the you boyfriend know, sucks. So he looks much. like he just stepped out of a Tears for Fears video. Which would be fine. Which would be fine. But so yeah, so that's I think something else you touched on. It ends in a very you know conservative, traditional way, where like kirsty
0: and that's the tragic thing kirsty like, runs
1: away and everything's safe with her boyfriend again whereas like you know the movies literally starts with frank like tear me apart fucking leather daddy
0: which that's what i want the whole movie to be and it's very frustrating that it's not well
1: he sort of gets that in the end it's just you know it takes escapes. A while. yes but and she's also so as a lead actress you know not the best of performances it's kind of very bland what else is she going to do, though? Like, I mean, so that's part of the problem. Like, there's not a lot for her to do.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's I also feel like we need to take a minute to talk about the series as a whole. If you're OK with that,
1: if you want to. I mean, I actually so I don't like the first one. The second one, I'm kind of like a little warmer, to because it gets into some really cool shit. You get like H.R. Geiger, M.C. Escher, weird the ass second imagery one is incredible. The second half of the movie, it just, you know, when they go into the hell world. It's weird as hell. And it's more of what I was liking, but there's still issues I have with the movie. And then everything after that, I'm just like, fuck off.
2: I've okay. seen most
1: of them or all of them at various points in my life, and I just don't like them. So I will the say the Memento th- one specifically.
0: I will say two things here. Thing number one is Clive Barker's plan or his idea was that if there were going to be more Hellraiser films after part two, that julia should be the main villain which i I think would have been fucking awesome because julia is one of the best horror movie villains of the 80s
1: she's the most interesting at least you know she is unabashedly evil in the best ways
0: she's just trying to get fucked and it goes (laughs) horribly
1: wrong (laughs) and no man can fuck her right no except for frank sort of
0: Frank totally can. She's into it, and then it's like Frank loses his skin because he
1: wants the cute little niece.
0: He doesn't really. He just wants it all, right? And
1: all meaning literally all. Yeah. But well, so he doesn't know. Like when he, so I'm just gonna give away the ending here. He ends up. You think he's gonna kill Kirsty, but he. Everyone's seen it. Right. There's no ending. You to think give he's away. gonna kill Kirsty, but he actually kills Julia because he just wants to. I'm gonna to have to assume rape Kirsty at this point. Christy at this point, because that's kind of what the implication is going Kirstie. there, Kirsty. Yeah. I'm I'm a little drunk at this point. Um it's kind of where they're going with that. So it's another level of like, I wanna transgress a moral boundary that I probably have not done yet. Uh
0: you think a dude who so, goes to Morocco to find the lament configuration hasn't niece. raped. Oh, all right. Okay. That's fair. I'll give family. you that one. Family. He's probably raped someone he's not related right. to, though. Family. Let's, a, let's at
1: least acknowledge that. What I'm going there with that there is family. Sure. So that's probably like, and it, so the weird, so the movie has like weird um, issues around family as well, like familial connections. And that seems like it's sure. actually like, so does part two. The, that's like the kind of the worst boundary you could transgress at that point, like breaking the familial bond.
0: Yeah. And I think it's interesting because if you look at the sort of general themes of the first two or three movies, part of what makes the Hellraiser villains, and I don't think of Pinhead as a villain to clarify what, what makes the villains like Frank and like Julia so villainous is they are extremely self centered and they lose all morals because they're so fixated on fulfilling their own desires, which is very 80s. Yeah. But also is really fascinating for a mainstream horror franchise. And I wish that we had more films that were like the first four because. The first four? I loved four. Three? Three is fine. Three I, is a mess. Hell on earth. I like three. It's a mess, but it's still part of the original series.
1: That's so, the one where I just sort of started checking out, and I've seen it like two or three times, and each time I it like gets worse. I like
0: it. Yeah, three isn't great. Four I loved. Four, I don't remember four. Four takes place sort of in the past and sort of in space. That's the space <laughs> one, okay. Uh, I should clarify and say that my friend Ryan, uh, who has... Another podcast that you should check out called Late Night Psychorama, where I have also been a guest, randomly, because, you know, it's quarantine and all people do now are random things, uh, we decided to watch a bunch of the Hellraiser sequels together. And so we watched four through nine, I think.
1: Interesting choices. No,
0: three through nine. None of them good. So three and four I really liked. You're wrong. I'm not wrong. I'm not saying everyone should watch three and four, but I really liked them. Five, six, seven, and eight. I think, actually, I think we watched, so we watched Inferno, Hellseeker, Deader, and Hellworld. So that's five through eight, in addition to three and four, are so fucking terrible. My eyes are
1: rolling into the back of my head. Uh, like not I, like Undertaker way, just like I am dying right now. I
0: am dying. I can't believe we made it through so many because- when you think about mainstream horror franchises something like nightmare on elm street or friday the 13th or even halloween it's basically the same movie over and over again but it just gets kind of worse the
1: studio sort of controls it to the extent that nothing ever really changes whereas in the hellraiser ones it's just literally like new line was like what is popular right now and they threw it into so like nuts the third one is literally set in like a rock club with like weird metal but
0: okay so one two three and four are all part of the same franchise but
1: they still like you still see it veering off of like the rails at that point by three
0: i disagree
1: i think one through four one and two are like the only ones i can tolerate okay i
0: think one through four are kind of following this sort of mainstream franchise formula by the time it gets to five, it is so the thing that enrages me so much is five, six, and seven are totally different bad horror movies where somebody wrote in maybe two scenes for Pinhead and they have nothing to fucking do with Hellraiser.
1: What's the one that's set up like Memento where it's like non-chronological?
0: That is uh the sixth one is called Hellraiser shit. Hellseeker. It's the worst it's hellraiser. got the guy from
1: those commercials
0: yes what the, fucking commercials the i'm your teenage daughter and i'm yeah. now gonna wreck your suv it's literally about him cheating my on boyfriend just, yes who is ashley lawrence who for some reason why would kirsty from
1: the first and second yeah. movies
0: randomly comes back for part six the worst one hellraiser inferno it's oh, hell world
1: is pretty bad the gamer one
0: that's the best of the the four of them.
1: <laughs> and that's not saying anything. That was part of like a trend in the late 2000s of like, oh, God. what was the movie? Game Over, the Night of the Demons remake, where it was like, there were like, they incorporated like gaming into these things or like raves or yes. all of these really shitty it's... 2000s experiences.
0: Yeah but hell world is so much better than five, six and seven that by the time, or maybe I just
1: was, you're hallucinating. I
0: was hallucinating by that point And I you're didn't even synchronized
1: hallucinations with pinhead.
0: Uh, so at the beginning of this, all I said to Ryan was, I don't know what to expect from any of these sequels. I haven't read anything about them. All I want is for somebody to fuck pinhead because that seems like <laughs> the natural direction. Nobody fucks pinhead.
1: Spoiler alert. I mean, no one technically fucks Pinhead in any of the movies. But
0: that was all I wanted, and but, it didn't happen.
1: You know, Pinhead is the dom in these movies, dishing out. He's you the know, daddy. Yeah, he's dishing out, dishing out. You know, the punishment to whoever it may be, whether it's Frank or. So yeah, see, the relationship in the first one is between Pinhead and Frank.
0: Yeah. So there no is no disagreement. Like, there. there is that
1: gay subtext. Julia's just like the side bitch. Uh, he, <laughs> frank doesn't really know what he wants no he doesn't he's using her to get he, what he wants, wants it all yeah typical dude no offense <laughs> so i do want to talk about the coil um soundtrack a little bit more it is amazing because we didn't really go into it enough it's crazy it's every creepy thing you can think of about like 80s industrial music, you've got kind of like, I don't want to say like almost carnival music, almost, but you get like influences like that. There is
0: a scene where there's this weird carnival
1: music that I think could totally work. So, one of the problems with producing the soundtrack is that Coyle said that they were not involved to the extent they would have liked to have been. Sure. The film crew did not, like, they just kind of kept them out, and the expectation was they're just going to write music sight unseen. And they actually wanted to be able to like marry the music to the images. So, what they presented was amazing fantastic great it's just not traditional in the sense that like most people would have recognized it It would have been like better for an underground film from that era
0: I mean and that's the thing that I think is really frustrating about Hellraiser in general is if you think about someone else that they worked with like Derek
1: Jarman who, who is better suited based on the nature of what he's doing he's got creative control he doesn't have to worry
0: Totally. But if Clive Barker had been in that sort of situation where he had more independent funding and he wasn't working with a mainstream studio and could have made this like lower budget, independent art horror film with all the crazy sex shit he wanted, then there could have been this amazing coil score. But instead, now we have to deal with the worldwide phenomena that is Hellraiser
1: and which makes me a little they sad. keep churning out sequels with the expectation that at some point they're going to remake it you know it's going to happen and it's not don't going to be Doug say Bradley. those things aloud I mean they're trying to do it in the late 2000s after Halloween 2018 the pile of shit that it is no they
0: did they remade Hellraiser when? I don't think they remade the first one but they made they made two of them so when I said that Ryan and I watched wait when did they remake all the this movie? sequels I don't think they remade it but they made like a reboot with a different pinhead who wasn't Doug Bradley. When so did that come out? We watched all the Doug Bradley movies. So 9 and 10. There's 10 of them? Yeah, we didn't watch 9 or 10 because they don't have Doug Bradley. Not that 5, 6, or 7, or even really 8 have Doug Bradley for more than like two minutes.
1: I've got bad news for you. So as I was alluding to, after Halloween 2018 became a success they've decided Which they're going to reboot it again terrible no guess, guess, guess who's writing i don't want to know first name that comes to mind blade boner what david Esquire. oh right. no he, he has at least been attached at one point to produce and maybe write i don't know if that's still happening but you know there's going to be a boner in that movie somewhere if so if you don't follow our social media (laughs) i'm fine with that we recently posted um (laughs) from blade three yeah we recently let our friends talk us into (laughs) into watching all three blade movies in one night so we're not fans of david goyer but we are fans of coil so this is probably a good place to bring this to an end because this is a goth movie podcast and we have to decide if what we are talking about is goth or not should we go through the rules Uh, no. (laughs) This is the first episode where we're not going to talk about the rules. So they're goth.
0: They're totally goth. Also, something that we're hoping to talk about more in the future that we didn't really talk about much is Derek Jarman.
1: who, Who we will do an episode on at some point.
0: Yes, and as we said, they did score some of his films. Their very first performance, as you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, was set to some of his films. And even if you look up some of their music on youtube there are a couple of people who have taken short derek jarman films and just like set them to coil songs yeah but things like jubilee i think are totally worthy of being on a goth podcast plus i fucking love derek jarman i got to do a commentary for his film the garden which is one of my like lifetime highlights fantastic derek jarman is incredible uh and so he deserves his own episode in short, sure. but there but are definitely a very close collaboration between the two of them or the three of them. As definitely.
1: Were. But for the purposes of this episode, we have determined that Coil is goth. Hellraiser is goth. Even though I'm not a fan of it, it is goth.
0: It's goth. Also, Coil are just the greatest ever.
3: I've got to.